0: If you're looking for some more interaction with myself and other listeners, then consider downloading the CastBox or Podbean podcast apps. You can leave comments about the show or specific episodes if you like. Here's one on CastBox from Ted Jordan. Finally, a story on starting a franchise, not buying into one. Quite eye-opening. Indeed it was, and thanks for the comment, Ted. He was referring to episode 78, if you want to check it out after this episode. And here's another one, this time from Podbean. This one's from T-Song. He was talking about Death Wish Coffee and says, Brilliant. Thanks for making this happen. You're welcome, brother. And our last comment for the day via CastBox. This one's from Mari Sars. And I believe he's talking about our podcast artwork. What did he say? He said, uh, here. Oh. What a dumb picture. Well, Maurice is a little bitch. I let Maurice also know that he didn't look very intelligent based on his picture. And so what's the lesson here? That Maurice is a bitch? No. Oh well, yeah, but also, you're going to have haters along the way. So just keep putting those hater blockers on and keep grinding. If you want us to read some of your comments be sure to post them in the CastBox or Podbean app. Now, let's get on with
1: the show. The same way that Blockbuster got clobbered by Netflix and Nokia got clobbered by Apple and retail everywhere is getting clobbered by Amazon, they're gonna wake up and go, wow, how did the world change? Where were we when this was happening? How were we not paying attention to it? it rarely goes on forever things change that's the one constant that we can count on is that things are going to change i'm gonna have to go get a job because of this unless you drop money out of the sky well that week money fell out of the sky and there's a really great lesson here, because a lot of people will put out a press release and they think that whatever their product or service does is what is newsworthy, but it's not. Are you going to be disrupted, or are you going to be the one disrupting? My name is Joel calm I'm in Denver, Colorado, and I've been an internet entrepreneur dabbling with technology for about 23 years now, and I am the co-host of the Bad Crypto Podcast, a show all about blockchain and cryptocurrency.
0: And then right when I reached out to you, I think you asked me, like, how did I get your information? And we do a lot of research on trying to find guests and send them out emails. It took me a little bit to figure it out, but then I looked and it was actually, we had you categorized down as the iFart app creator. Out of all the things that you've done, it was kind of funny that that's what we had you picked by.
1: Yeah, you never know what's going to pop up probably known in about six different markets and niches for different things I've done. Some people know me as the ifur guy. Some people know me as the creator of Yahoo Games. Others know me as the founder of one of the world's first coupon bargain hunting sites, dealaday.com. And then I've got others that know me for social media or for teaching them how to make money with AdSense. It's all over the map.
0: It's pretty wild because I'd say you're easily the most diverse founder that I've had on or entrepreneur. Most people might have one or two companies that they talk about and what they've exited or whatnot. And for you, it's hard to pin down just like one thing, it seems like. The more I just kept researching, it's definitely the most research I've gone into to try to figure out what we should talk about.
1: What does this guy do, for crying out loud? Yeah, I like to play in a lot of different sandboxes, and that curiosity has found me in a lot of different niches.
0: Well, why don't we talk about how it got started all from the very beginning? Are you from Denver, Colorado?
1: No, I'm not. I'm actually from Chicago suburbs, Northbrook, Illinois, which is where The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, John Hughes, went to my high school. So if you've seen any of those classic movies from the 80s, that is my hood. I went to school at University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and promptly left Illinois for good after I graduated and spent 20 years in Texas and Oklahoma before I ended up in Northern Colorado in 2007. So I've been here since then, and this is home.
0: How about we just take your journey chronologically from maybe college or whenever you started your first venture up till today. Does that sound good? Sure. Okay, let's do it. As you wish. So how to get started. Did you become an entrepreneur right outside of college?
1: You know, I was a DJ in college. I worked both in the local nightclubs at the U of I campus and also as a DJ on WPGU, Rock 107 FM, Urbana Champagne's classic rock. Once I got out of college, I wanted to continue being a DJ. And after, I don't know, a year or two of working in the clubs and trying that out, I realized I can make a lot more money in business for myself as a mobile DJ, doing wedding receptions, pool parties, class reunions, that type of thing. That was my first real entrepreneurial venture. As a mobile DJ and did that for a number of years before the internet became an opportunity for me.
0: As a DJ, about how much were you making a year doing that? Was that your full
1: time gig? You know, I did two other things. I had an actual JOB working for a couple nationally syndicated Christian radio ministries and I did a number of things. I worked in shipping and fulfillment. I worked in data entry department as a manager, edit the programs, you know, a long time ago on a Macintosh using Pro Tools. So I learned about editing, you know, who knew that would pay off later when it came to my own podcasts. And I also supplemented income in sales. I sold emergency systems, you know, the I fallen and I can't get up thing, those commercials you've seen. I traveled around. You were that guy who fell and couldn't get up? Well, that was an old lady, but <laughs> sure. I was the old lady that fell and can't but I visited with people that needed this thing, and I also sold Encyclopedia Britannicas for about a year and a half or so. You know, cut my teeth on sales. It was in 1995. I've been into computers forever. In fact, I had a TRS-80 Model 1 with 4K of RAM back in 1980. I was dialing into bulletin board services at 300 baud with a coupler modem. I've been technically dialing into the online world for 38 years now, and I've really dated myself at this moment. But I've always been geeking out on technology, and when I learned about the World Wide Web in 1995, that's when I decided to build my first website. Shortly after that, I gave up DJing, hung up my vinyl and CDs, and went all in on building an internet business 23 years ago.
0: Let's jump into, was it ClassicGames.com you created, and... Did you just save up money from DJing before you created this company?
1: No, actually, and it wasn't my first thing. That didn't come along for a couple of years later. In 1995, I had a business partner and I was doing software reviews. I actually created a physical magazine, a zine called the Dallas Fort Worth Software Review because I was a computer gamer, always have been, and I wanted to get free software. And I thought, well, The guys who write for magazines probably get all the free software they want. So I started this little zine and knew enough about layout and design that I could put it together and wrote the articles. And then when we discovered the internet, I thought, why don't we make this website? And that was actually the first site. In July of 1995, worldvillage.com was launched. And it was all software reviews, games, educational software, multimedia, you know, CD-ROMs. And that happened actually because my partner's friend, Had Angel invested us about $25,000, which was enough for me to say, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to do this. The money didn't last very long though. My partner went to work for Microsoft and left me with the company and I was just about out of money. Honestly, we had $2 or less in the checkbook. It was one of those moments where like, okay, this is not good. You know, I was married with two young kids. I'm thinking, this wasn't the way this is supposed to go. And I remember praying, when the rubber meets the road and you're flat on your back, that's a great time to look up. I was like, all right, I thought this is what I was supposed to do, and it's not working out. I'm going to have to go get a J-O-B because of this, unless you drop money out of the sky. Well, Austin, that week, money fell out of the sky. And what I could only categorize as a specific answer to that prayer, because I got an email from a guy in Washington State who I didn't know who was representing a Japanese multimedia conglomerate that I never heard of and couldn't pronounce. I can now. It's a mouthful. It's Takaraja Misha is the name of the company. And at that time, they were kind of like a time warner. They did radio, they did TV, they did print, and they wanted to the license content from worldvillage.com. And short story is it saved my bacon and got me back on my feet. So I could develop other sites. And in 1997, my webmaster had located a guy who was a grad student at UCSD, San Diego. He had developed the very basic foundations for a multiplayer game site on the Internet so people could play chess and checkers against each other in real time it was a java based game room and i contacted this guy his name was aaron and i said you know i've got a site that's got some traffic and i love games and you're programming this thing what if we partnered up and see what we can build so we did and classicgames.com was born he continued coding i marketed and we had thousands of registrations and people playing games on our site and then one day i got a knock on my virtual door from a little company known yahoo And Yahoo was the behemoth at that time, the biggest search engine and directory on the web. They were king. They were the Google of that era. And long story short, they ended up acquiring the ClassicGames.com from us. Aaron went to work for them. I cashed my check, and it became known as Yahoo Games. And that was my first real seven-figure home run on the web. That took place in 1998.
0: And how did you market back then ClassicGames.com?
1: I think I used my existing site, worldvillage.com, quite a bit. We had a newsletter and we drove traffic to it. And you, know, you got to realize there just wasn't a lot of content online that time. You know, when I built my site in 1995, there was only 18,000 sites that year. So by the time 98 came around, 97, I'm thinking maybe hundred thousand two hundred thousand or so and people were looking for things to do and we provided a great online gaming experience that connected people i think there was only one competitor i think play site was the other one at the time and i'm not really sure what happened to them so people gravitated to it and they told their friends because they had a great experience and it didn't take a lot because we had a quality product and people really enjoyed the community and they enjoyed the games
0: Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, 9 out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than 5 minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So, to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire they're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal you'll get three months free once you do your first payroll and again the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire did yahoo just stroke you and your partner a check or did you leave or did you have to stay on where to go from there
1: Well, it wasn't that simple. Yahoo was very slow. They wanted to partner with us, but they didn't want to buy us right out. They wanted to try something for six months and see how it went. And I'm like, six months? I already knew internet time was compressed, and six months was way too long to just try something. And I told them, you know, here's what we want for it, and they ended up writing us a check, and my partner went to work for them for a number of years and became the chief game Yahoo. And I moved on to some other things, I mean, it was in their hands. And Yahoo Games was one of the premier multiplayer gaming sites for, oh, about, I don't know, 15, 16 years or so. They shut down a couple of years ago, much to the chagrin of their users, but Yahoo just failed in general. It was great for an era, and I moved on to building my bargain hunting site, dealofday.com, which became one of the premier sites for shoppers finding coupons until I sold it about 2012.
0: Mm -hmm. So that was your next transition was deal of day. And then you did that for another 10 plus years.
1: Well, yeah, but I was also doing other things concurrently, you know, that kind of had a life of its own and it was all affiliate income from all the different merchants we worked with. And then of course the bubble burst, you know, in 2000 and for the next few years, while there was revenue coming in from deal of day, everything had dropped off significantly. A lot of companies went out of business and I knew and I knew that I knew and I knew that I knew that I knew that it was going to come back one day. It wasn't a question. The internet was here to stay. It was just a matter of time for it to get back on its legs. And I tried so many different ways to monetize deal of day and my other websites. And one day I ran across this thing that Google had started called Google AdSense. And this would have been in late 2003, I think. And this was, they offered people a piece of code that they would put on their content sites. And AdSense was really unique in that It would read the content of your page and deliver advertisements from their massive inventory of ads that people were placing with them and deliver those ads to publisher websites. And whenever somebody would click on one of those ads, Google would share the revenue with you. spring 2004, I was sitting in a conference room, a mastermind, and I was next to a friend of mine had his laptop open and I saw his AdSense revenue report where he was making a couple hundred dollars a day. And I said, really? AdSense is treating you that well? And he said, yep. So sitting in that conference room that day while others were speaking, I began testing different AdSense parameters on my blog. I began testing different color schemes, block sizes, page placement, and my revenue within 24 hours went from $20 to $80. And I thought, huh, I'm on to something. So I kept testing and then I'm over $100 and pretty soon I'm making $200 a day. And that just kept going up, up and up where I was making passively 500 to sometimes over $1,000 a day in AdSense revenue. And I showed a few friends how they could do this with their content sites and they started making more. And I don't know who it was, Austin, but somebody said, you should write a book about this. So I thought, oh, okay. And I wrote this ebook. 66 pages called what Google never told you about making money with AdSense. And I had never sold an information product before and I had never really put myself out there as an internet business teacher or, you know, an author. This book resonated overnight because we were recovering from the dot com bubble burst and people wanted to know, how do you make money on the internet? And here I was with actual proof of making significant income from my content sites. And the book sold $10,000 worth in its first week. It just went viral, uh, sold more and more, which led to a second edition that sold for even more thousands of copies of this book at $97. It was digital. It was an ebook. It was all air ones and zeros. So the profit margins were crazy. And that opened up a whole new realm for me because now I was starting to get asked to go speak at conferences, internet marketing events, entrepreneurial events to talk and present on how do you make money with your website?
0: So at first, did you actually have Google AdWords, but it was only making 20 bucks, but then all the experiments helped you get to like 100 or 200 yeah. bucks a
1: day? Like, and what were you doing? AdWords is the advertiser side, AdSense is the publisher side. Google has a huge inventory of advertisers that advertise with AdWords and AdSense was their initiative to say, hey, if you're a web publisher, you can put these AdWord ads on your site. And that's what they called AdSense. I was making probably 15 To $20 a day with it. And it was these changes, finding the right ad block sizes, what worked, because Google didn't know what worked at that time. They had, you know, here's all these options and we figured it out. So I kind of cracked the code on block size, page placement, the colors of the ads, what worked best to get the maximum click through and maximum revenue. And it was those findings that today are standard. fact, it took Google years before they finally started offering their own recommendations. And they were the same recommendations that I had been giving to people for years prior. We took that ebook that was a bestseller and turned it into a traditionally published book that was released in 2006 called the AdSense Code. And the AdSense Code went on to hit the New York Times bestseller list in March and April of 2006. And so that then exposed me to another whole new audience. And before you know it, I found myself speaking at Tony Robbins Wealth Mastery and Business Mastery events and T. Harv Eker's, you know, Never Work Again and found myself on stage at the London O2 at an entrepreneur boot camp speaking to 5,000 or so people traveling all over to do these events and teach people. It was a great ride.
0: And that was all just from really when you look back from figuring out this
1: AdSense and AdWords? Yeah, pretty much that's how it started. But, you know, I didn't stop at that. While that was happening, we created ancillary products to help people with their AdSense. Shortly after the success of the AdSense code, I met a gentleman, an internet marketer, at a Yannick Silver underground internet marketing event in Washington, D.C. His name was Eric Homeland. And Eric met me there and said, Love to find a way to work with you. And I said, well, if you come up with something, let me know. And a week or so later, he messaged me and said, I've got an idea that would supplement what you're doing for your AdSense clients. I said, great. He says, the biggest struggle that they seem to have is building a website and getting started so they can monetize that website. And we came up with instant AdSense templates. That was basically a template that would have the right layout design and ad blocks built into it in multiple different niches with headers that would help them get the website up and running quickly. This is before WordPress was a thing. Now it's easy to do with WordPress, but then There wasn't such a product, and we sold about three hundred thousand dollars worth of these training CDs in a week. And it was so successful people wanted more, so we fleshed it out with more different platforms that the templates fit in, with some private label rights articles that would help people get started with their sites. So they put something up before they began writing their own content. And we sold a million dollars worth of that second edition of Instant Answers templates at five days. People were just rabid for this type of content and one thing led to another it led to more books in the entrepreneurial niches it led to more conferences it led to me building team out in northern colorado we had up to 38 people at one point which was insane i'm not happy solopreneur again even though we did all kinds of fun things i wouldn't go back to having a staff like that again
0: this whole time were you in colorado up to this point now cuz earlier you said you moved around i just want to make sure we understand that journey
1: Yeah, I started in Texas and then moved my family to Oklahoma City area, Edmond to be specific in 1998. And then 2007 in the midst of this, the big AdSense success is when I moved to Northern Colorado and really built out my team. That same year that we moved here is when I brought Eric, my joint venture partner, an idea for our next project. I was inspired by the rise of YouTube for video, online video and The success of the show The Apprentice. And I went to Eric. I said, You know, what if we produced a high quality reality show, a competitive reality show strictly for the internet? And thus was born the show The Next Internet Millionaire, where we auditioned about 300 people. We ended up inviting 12, six men, six women from US, Canada, Costa Rica, and the UK to come for a two week competition where they would learn from some of the leaders in the internet marketing space, you know, very successful internet millionaires, and they would compete for an opportunity to do a joint venture with me and win a briefcase full of cash, $25,000. And so I hosted and was the executive producer of the world's first competitive internet reality show, which you can still find on YouTube. We got an honorary Webby Award. I think there's a Wikipedia page for it. It was way before its time. I mean, it's one of my favorite things that I've ever been a part of because it was just an amazing thing that we had produced and had so many brilliant people on the team. I was kind of the monkey with the microphone. It was my idea, but the team we had really pulled off something pretty groundbreaking.
0: What was the result of that? What did you learn? And were they able to become millionaires by doing it?
1: Everybody's kind of gone off their own direction. There's one of them was a contestant, Charles Trippi. He's a big YouTuber and also plays with popular pop band called We the Kings, plays bass with them. And Charles has a very successful YouTube channel. And some of the others have done some things online. Some have gone off to other things. I learned about video production and show production. And I learned that I need to always keep doing what interests me and what's fun and take risks. And we took a big risk on that show. Amazingly, we broke even on it. But to this day, more than 10 years later, I still have people come up to me and ask me, when are you going to do another season of The Next Internet Millionaire? And I laugh at them and I say, when you fund it, (laughs) it was a big project to manage and took a lot of time. I'm good with one and done on it, but I'm not writing off that I wouldn't do television or some other series of some kind should the right opportunity present itself. Speaking of
0: work up to this point, what was your like lifestyle like at this point in time, your hours that you're putting in? Because a lot of entrepreneurs at first, at least, when they're starting something, they're spending a lot of hours to try to grow it. And it seems like you're doing these different companies or jumping around. And obviously, it seems like you need to put a lot of time in order to grow them.
1: Well, there's a big difference between working hard and working smart. I am not a fan of the hustle and grind mentality. I think that's dangerous. It's bad to teach people. I definitely think there's seasons in life where you need to put in the hours and buckle down and work harder, but that lifestyle in itself is not sustainable. There's more important things than money and it comes down to the people in your life. And it comes down to having a life that's rich with experiences and making a difference and bringing value. And I think our society teaches an over-importance of material possessions. When I see 19 to 24-year-olds being misled by people on YouTube saying, you need a Lambo in your garage and, you know, you need a mansion, I think that is just downright wrong because I've made money, I've lost money, I'd rather have than not have. But once you have enough to pay your bills and enjoy a basic lifestyle that makes you happy, you discover that more money is not the solution. In fact, more money can be a burden For some people, which is why you see people who suddenly win the lottery and come into millions of dollars, their lives collapse because they don't know how to manage that type of money. They didn't earn it. All of a sudden, they discover that they've got friends coming out of the woodwork and they have an entourage and they don't know what to do with themselves because they thought that having money would bring them meaning, but meaning can't come from money or material possessions. So I have never been a big fan of working around the clock. I think it's a mistake, personally. I think that you can have a lot more fulfillment in life by finding a healthier balance. And a lot of the things I've done don't feel like work because I have so much fun doing them. And that's actually the topic of my next book. It's called The Fun Formula, and it's about how creativity and risk-taking and trusting the process are the answer that so many people seek for fulfillment in their business and in their life.
0: Yeah, I bring that up because you were actually talking about that in one of the videos I was watching, the one with John Lane Dumas, in case you're wondering. Because mm-hmm. yeah, I agree with you. I just didn't know if there was a point in time that you realized personally, because that's what I find. It seems like a lot of entrepreneurs are just putting all that time into it and then they reach a tipping point, like you're saying, where maybe they made so much money and they realize putting all these hours kind of for nothing.
1: I think that in retrospect, I spent more time spinning my wheels thinking I was being productive than I needed to and didn't affect my marriage in a good way and certainly took away from time with my kids. Could I go back? I'm sure that I would reprioritize some of those things so that I wasn't spending as much time doing busy work that really wasn't productive. I've discovered that the greatest success has come from showing up at events, making the right phone call at the right time, allowing the right connection into my life, answering a specific email. It's usually the little things that have moved mountains and the rest of it is kind of waste of time.
0: Do you have any suggestions for someone who's maybe thinking they're busy and maybe not using their time productively? Was there certain things that you found that once you cut those out, that it helped you free up a lot of time and really wasn't helping you grow your businesses?
1: Well, you know, for me, again, if I'm doing what I love, then I don't think of it as work. If I get bogged down in the things that I'm not enjoying, then that's usually a signal that I should be having either a partner that I've joint venture with or that I should be sourcing out some of those things because I'm not going to do them as well, but they take a lot more time and effort and they're more emotionally draining. So right there, if you realize that, hey, I can't do it all and I don't have to. That can save you a huge amount of time. I would rather focus on the things that keep me intrigued and engaged that I know I'm going to do well and excel at and free up the rest of the time to play. I mean, to this day, I'm 53 years old. And to this day, I take time to play a shoot up on my computer because I'm a computer gamer. I don't care how much work there is to do. There's always more work to do. But living my life in a manner that is pleasing to me and doesn't cause me a great deal of stress is way more important than, you know, whether or not my bank account is going to grow by a certain amount the next month. It's a different sense of priorities.
0: What were those things for you that you cut out or maybe outsourced? So that way, if someone's thinking, hey, maybe I could cut these things out too, and maybe I'd be a little bit happier. Was there specifically a few items?
1: Yeah. I don't need to be doing graphic design. You know, I used to mess around with Photoshop a little bit, but I don't do that anymore. It's very rare. I mean, I can crop a photo now, and that's about it. That's about all the time I'll spend. But if I need any graphic work going, it's not going to be me. Even writing, I get help with that. When I do a book, I'll tend to record all my content on audio because it's easier for me to speak my content than to sit down, write out 250 pages. And once I've got it all spoken, I'll transcribe it and then I'll take that transcription and I'll hand it to an editor and say, oh, help me piece this together. And then once I've got a rough draft based on that content, I'll go in and I'll edit and reword and rework and get it where I want to. But you know, a lot of people think when you write a book, you got to sit down at your keyboard and pound it out all yourself, and you don't. And it's still my content. It's the things that I say and teach and believe. But I found ways to manage the creation of that content in a way that's more organic and natural and feels right to me. These are the types of things. You're not going to find me coding anything. You're not going to find me building websites. You know, I'm going to source that. The list of things that I would source goes on. I like to do the things that. I am best at and everything else it can find another way to get it done better and faster.
0: Let's talk about after the result of the next millionaire was there a next step from there and Yeah. What time period are we in now that we're jump back in?
1: Fall 2007 the show finished up around that time you know we were staffing up and had some developers on site. We knew that Steve Jobs had said that they were going to allow people to make applications for the iPhone. And I was an iPhone fan. I had bought the very first iPhone in summer of 2007, probably a couple weeks after they launched. I paid 5.99 for it and didn't care because I thought it was so cool. We started making apps and had one of the first thousand apps in the app store. It's called iVote Mobile. You know, you can vote on topics on your iPhone. But it was shortly after that, our team came up with the idea to create a novelty application that went on to become pretty much the de facto novelty app. In December of 2008, the iFart Mobile was released to the App Store, and it went to number one in the entire world, not just the category, but was actually the number one app for 23 days. Got me all kinds of media coverage, just ridiculous amounts of coverage all over the world from this app blowing up and getting me on the Jon Stewart Daily Show and a bunch of other media outlets and didn't see that coming. But again, it was being creative, doing something that we thought would be fun and interesting, taking a risk. And it paid off. Millions of downloads later, it's really funny, we're coming up December of 2018 will be the 10th anniversary of iFart. And people still buy it every single day. It still brings in revenue every day. It's kind of evergreen and still gets written about from time to time. And I'm sure with the 10th anniversary coming out, we'll probably put out a press release celebrating 10 years of flatulence and billions of fart sounds served and billions of laughs brought to the world. And it'll probably get coverage again. So that was fun. Have you ever read
0: four books in one day? And no, children's books don't count. With Blinkist... You can get the key insights of the best nonfiction books in less than 15 minutes. So that's more like 50 books in a day. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. So you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes all on your phone. With Blinkist, you'll expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere, and they do mean anywhere. My personal recommendation is to check out some of the classic business books that you always wanted to read, but never had the time to, like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from best-of lists, so you're always getting powerful ideas in a made-for-mobile format. 5 million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to blinkist.com/millionaire to start your free 7-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com/millionaire to start your 7-day free trial. And you can cancel at any time. Blinkist.com slash millionaire. How did you create that? Just walk us through the steps of like building an app then and getting it in the market there.
1: What you would do then is not much different than what you do now. It's just harder now because there's so much competition. But we hired a developer that understood the Xcode toolkit, which is what's used for iOS. And I had another developer that understood server side type of things. And then had a graphic designer that created the interface. And then my VP of ideas at that time, Dan Nickerson, who's a good friend of mine, really brainstormed the sounds, edited things together and came up with the names and we discussed the marketing. And then it came down to press releases, putting the news out there that would appeal to the market in a unique way. And there's a really great lesson here because a lot of people will put out a press release and they think that whatever their product or service does is what is newsworthy, but it's not. Putting out a fart app in itself might have been newsworthy at the time, but it wasn't the approach that I took. At that time, those that were developing iPhone applications really had no idea how rankings correlated to sales. That is, if you're number 98 in the entertainment category, how many units is that that people are buying? What if you're number 10 overall? What does that mean? And so I started sharing our sales and rank numbers on my blog. And after about five days of that, I decided to put out a press release that I thought the tech community would enjoy. And sure enough, It got picked up by VentureBeat, and then it got picked up by TechCrunch and Mashable and Ars Technica and some of these others. And as it got picked up, it led to more sales for the app. And so I think it was approaching the story from an angle that would appeal to a different area of interest. And this was the developer community that led to the media talking about the app, which then led it to the consumer community and drove even more sales. And the thing climbed the charts. And it came out on December 12th. And I want to say December 22nd, 10 days later, is when it hit number one. Since it was the top app on Christmas Day, I put out another press release saying, you know, we had almost 30,000 sales on Christmas Day. And that got picked up by TechCrunch. They had a headline with something like a Christmas Eifert explosion. (laughs) And it just kept going like that.
0: How much time are you spending on it? Cause I guess that's what I'm trying to feel as, as well when I was asking about the lifestyle and how much time you're putting in because you're doing all these different ventures. It seems like it'd be hard to manage your time on what you're doing versus not doing. This obviously sounds like something fun and different
1: to do. Well, it was fun, but it didn't take a lot of time. You know, we pulled in the conference room. We came up with the idea and said, okay, designer come up with look for it programmer, make it work team come up with the content. And you know, I paid people to do it and then. The marketing part, that was me. I wrote a press release. I made the contact, sent it out. When I look at the things that have succeeded, again, the Yahoo Games thing, the iFort thing, the AdSense templates, these things were not hugely time intensive. They were smart. They were calculated. They fit within my lifestyle organically. It wasn't that you found me at the office burning the midnight oil. That just wasn't how it's been or how it's ever been or how it will ever be. If I don't want to work, even before I had the money, if I'm not in a place where I feel like I'm going to be productive, then I don't try to force it. It doesn't work. You have to give yourself room to breathe, to rest, to have fun, to do the things you want to do. And anybody who tells you otherwise is going to wear you out. It's not effective
0: from there. The only reason I'm bringing this up again, it seems like you would have to know this from experience. And I'm asking about your ability to keep organized while doing these different things, even if it's not that much time spent. So it's not that (laughs) I agree and say, hey, you have to do this either, because I agree with you on that point. But I'm just trying to feel like most people will only focus on like one company or one thing, but there's a lot of different things along the way that you were able to jump to. It seems like it'd be difficult sometimes to leave one thing and go to another. I'm just trying to understand the life story.
1: Yeah, I actually don't know how to not do multiple things. I've always had multiple interests and I like playing with the different toys. So I'm never, okay, I'm all in on this one thing. And this is all I'm going to do. Even now, I just got back from a week in San Diego at an internet marketing and a social media marketing conference because I enjoy those people and I enjoy that content and I want to have connections to that environment. has absolutely nothing to do with cryptocurrency and blockchain, but I want to do it. Because of that, I do. And I think I've always been like that. I've been, it's not multitasking because you're really not doing two things at the same exact time. I just kind of alt tab between tasks really easily some people really need to plan us. Some people, they need their schedule and planning for them is important. They have day planners and every minute is counted for in order for them to be productive. That's great if that's you. That's not for everybody. If I don't have it on my calendar, then all of the in-between time means I just do whatever I want to do. It could be checking email. It could be writing an article. It could be following up on a lead. It could be goofing off and playing a game. If it's not scheduled on my calendar, then that in-between time, I know that I'm going to get everything that I need to get done. And I'm also going to enjoy the lifestyle that I enjoy. And so people need to figure out what level of planning works for them. What's important to you? How do you work best? If they were a big planner, and for them, scheduling and maximizing your time There's some people that's important. That's not important to me. You have to figure out, is that important to you? And live it out as naturally and as organically and as authentically for you as you can. That's where you're going to get the greatest comfort. And this has worked for me for, well, my entire life.
0: What was the time spent between doing the app and then now today? And where have you gone from there?
1: Well, you know, there's a number of other projects. I had a printed magazine for a while and released other information products, did a lot of speaking at conferences. You know, I've written a number of different books and different topics within the tech and marketing space. But in 2010, things started taking a turn for the worse business wise. It had grown bloated. I had one employee embezzle from me. I had another one that I hired to run my business that just about ran it into the ground and the wheels were falling off my marriage at the same time. And so. So, 2011, I slowly, over a period of about a year, let go of everybody, got rid of the big office, stopped speaking, wasn't writing any books. I took a mini sabbatical of sorts where I kind of went off the radar, not totally, but to a large degree. And I worked on myself, you know, my physical health, my emotional health, my spiritual health. While my marriage didn't work out with a happy ending, I grew a lot during those two years. And by the time I came back on the scene in 2013, you know, I began finding my way. What do I want to do now? Who am I? Where do I bring the greatest value? So that led to me getting into the live video realm I kind of ended up falling into a leadership role teaching people how to use apps like Periscope and Facebook live. I wrote a book about it. I began speaking at events all over the place on this topic and teaching from corporate to small mom and pop entrepreneurs. And that was all great fun because I liked live video quite a bit, but I wasn't dramatically passionate about it. It was something that I could do that I enjoyed doing. It wasn't until July that I found a new passion that my curiosity and exploration into that arena led me to a unicorn, to a podcast that I co-host with marketing technologist Travis Wright. It's a friend of mine that he and I would have discussions about blockchain and cryptocurrency, and we decided, hey, let's turn this into a show. I've basically pivoted about 99% of my time and effort to all things surrounding this show and things that support this message of blockchain and cryptocurrency and where it's taking us into the future.
0: I don't want to jump over the sabbatical and like being able to downsize your company Mm -hmm. because that seems like a rough point. Obviously, it's a point that you're trying to make, it sounds like. Obviously, it's not all about the money, but tell us a little bit more about the closing the company and then maybe the last part we can talk about crypto a little bit more in detail.
1: Sure. Well, it was just, I knew that my life had hit a wall and I wasn't sure what direction I should go, but I knew that this part of my journey was coming to a close and money isn't everything. Having a huge team became burdensome and it was time for a change. So I took that opportunity to say, okay, we did this. We did well. We had some big successes. I made some big mistakes. We had some failures. It's time to move on. I'm going to pull away, go in my cave for a little while, and work on myself. And so, you know, I lost about 50 pounds or so that I needed to lose. I saw a counselor and worked on some of my own personal emotional issues. I found a spirituality that really worked for me and connected me with God in a meaningful way. It was very transformative. I came out the other side, still me. But, you know, what I like to call Joel 2.0, new and improved me that was ready to take on that next part of my life. It was a great process. I think self-examination is essential, becoming aware of who you are and what your gifts and talents are, but also what your limitations are. And being true to yourself is a huge part of personal growth.
0: What was the company called that had grown so big and then that you said, Maybe someone was embezzling and almost run the company into the ground because hopefully an entrepreneur who's listening right now or someone who wants to start a company can learn from this.
1: It's the same company I've always had. It's InfoMedia Inc. has been my company since 1995. I also, Joel Com Inc. is one of their companies and that's really where I put all my speaking and brand influencer type of efforts into. But I've been really fortunate in that one, I've never spent more than I had coming in. A lot of people, they come into newfound wealth and they go buy the Lambos and they buy the big house and they get overextended because they think the stuff's going to go on forever. And it never does. Well I'll say rarely. It rarely goes on forever. Things change. That's the one constant that we can count on is that things are going to change. And I can't tell you how many times I've had cash flowing in from some sort of deal. And you think, wow, this goes on for five years, but it doesn't. Things change. The economy changes, relationships change, markets change. I never spent more than I had. So even during the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, while things got dicey for a few years and I was going through the money I had made, we never got upside down. And then, you know, same thing in 2010, 11, it's like, okay, let's scale back. Let's be reasonable here. Let's not spend more than we're bringing in and make this work. I think that that's important. Don't get distracted by the rock star lifestyle. When I see it, I just cringe. And sometimes I go to these events and I see these younger guys have come into money and they think it's going to go on forever. You know, they have what I call these one hit wonders, come up with a product and they sell it, they make a bunch, but then they need to do another big launch. They need to come up with another product in order to perpetuate it. I've seen so many people in this industry come and go. They have their big one-hit wonder and then they go off the grid and now they're working in a job or doing something else because they couldn't figure out how to make it sustainable. I'm going to stick with my approach to life as being sustainable because it's more authentic and I think that when we're in tune with Being who we are and living that out, not just in life, but in our business, you end up building a reputation that follows you around and opens doors for more opportunities.
0: Is there anything else that someone could learn from the downsizing of the company? Because it seems like a lot of balls to go ahead and do that. Most people be like, if it's not working, they hire more people. But it seems like that was a point where maybe you're just getting frustrated or it's too much to deal with. Explain that a little bit more.
1: I don't think that there's any one formula for when is the right time to expand and when is the right time to pull back on things. I've just tried to be real organic with it and follow my gut, but there's times that, you know, I've made mistakes. I remember one business that I was kind of pioneering the whole mobile marketing arena. In 2009, we had put six figures into building a platform that was kind of like a MailChimp, constant contact, but for mobile devices. My heart wasn't really in it, but the guy running the company really thought it was a good idea, so I said okay, and uh, the technology was cool, but we spent a lot of time and money on it, and it never really got off the ground. And it was like 2011 or so that, you know, I'm still paying for this technology to keep it afloat month by month. You know, when you build for a mobile platform, it's dependent upon your short code that you use. And if you don't keep paying for it, you lose your short code and then the whole system becomes useless. And I remember looking and thinking, okay, we're not successful in selling this as a B2B thing. What if I just try to sell the whole business? And that didn't work. We tried to raise venture. That didn't work. What if we just tried to sell the code to somebody else who wants to do that? And that didn't work. And you know, you got one of your babies here. and It's like, what do I do with it? And I kept paying for it every month. And one day I thought, you know what? I'm done. I'm pulling the plug on it, which means everything we've put into it goes down the drain. And then I got to live with the fact that I wasted all this money. But you know, Austin, something really unusual happened when I pulled the plug. Rather than feeling like a failure, I felt this weight lifted off my shoulders. I felt this burden just fly away and I learned a really great lesson that day and now it's something that hopefully others will learn from and that is that I stopped failing the moment that I stopped paying for it. It was a costly lesson but well worth it and now I'm not going to make that same mistake again. Sometimes you just need to let go. In fact, here's something that's happening right now I've had the big house. You know, I was married with kids and we had the 6,000 square foot house with a beautiful view and, you know, the home theater and extra rooms. And that was great for a time. But post-divorce, I've lived in small homes because I got rid of a lot of my stuff and I didn't want a lot of space. I no longer had the personal need for a big house with a lot to take care of. I've scaled back, but I still have a lot of personal possessions, things I've carried with me for years, some of them for, you know, since my childhood. And as we speak right now, I'm getting ready to move. I'm doing something I never thought I would do. I'm actually moving back to apartment living by choice, not because I can't afford a house, but I don't want to deal with a house at all. And I am getting rid of 80% of my personal possessions, things that I thought I wanted to keep for all my life, that there might be value to them, or they had, you know, emotional attachment. And I'm finding myself getting incredibly detached. And even though they're not gone yet, they will be soon. And I'm feeling this release, like there's a new beginning coming, and it's beautiful. This is where I am right now.
0: I think that's important for people to listen and realize that, yeah, how much more time does it take to upkeep a house? And I can understand, like, because whenever I start throwing stuff away randomly that I don't need the papers that have been there for a couple of months that I don't need, automatically just start feeling better about yourself. Yeah. You're also talking about your heart wasn't into that product as much. And let's go ahead and talk about what your heart is in today now, kind of how you started getting into cryptocurrency and maybe just make it as simple as possible, if you can, for someone who is not too familiar with cryptocurrency.
1: Yeah, I'm just a huge fan of blockchain technology. I feel like people talk about Bitcoin and they talk about making money, but they're missing the point. It's not about that. It's about blockchain technology, which is the most disruptive technology, I believe, of our lifetime because the number of different verticals that it's going to disrupt. Big fan of it. It's going to change the way we do payments and banking and tracking contracts and so many different things. And so Travis Wright and I started this show in July. We do usually about four episodes a week. We have a blast doing it and it's led to sponsorships for our show. It's led to invitations to speak at events, to MC events, to take our show on the road and do our podcast show live on stage, it's led to invitations to be attacked to as advisors on blockchain companies. It's opened up all these new doors and it's caused me to let go of some other things that I was doing in terms of paid brand ambassadorships because I feel like this is where I need to be. This is really an exciting part of the journey. It feels a lot like the internet circa 1996 to me. That same vibe of we are on the cutting edge of the next big thing. I promise you blockchain technology is here to stay and the people who are laughing at it and saying, oh, this is just a fad, are the same type of people that would call Jeff Bezos insane. thinking he was going to build a business selling books out of his garage.
0: For someone who has no idea what blockchain is, is there a simplistic way to give them an idea of what it is?
1: You know, what's really funny about it is I've been spending the last six months learning about this, finding the right words to explain this in a way that a fifth grader can understand. And I'm still working on that. But basically, if you'll see it as a list of records, those are the blocks they're linked together using cryptographic data. Because of the nature of it, it's an open distributed ledger that basically records transactions between two parties in a way that is verifiable and permanent. It's peer-to-peer data that once a piece of data is on a block, it can't be changed. It can't be hacked. It's secure. And that's why it's going to change all types of things, such as transaction processing, voting, tracing items, contracts. And of course, the blockchain was invented by a gentleman named Satoshi Nakamoto. And its initial use was for the cryptocurrency everybody's heard of called Bitcoin. And blockchain was used for a public ledger. So you can see everything that's taking place. It solves the problem of double spending. It solves the need to have a centralized, trusted authority, such as a bank. And this design of Bitcoin and blockchain has become the thing that's inspired hundreds, actually thousands now, of new applications.
0: A year ago, were you even too familiar with crypto?
1: (laughs) You know, it's really funny because I remember hearing friends say, Bitcoin, Joel, Bitcoin, I was like, ah, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. So I'm not interested. It wasn't until spring of 2017 that it was just time. I had heard from a friend, you know, are you doing Bitcoin? you I'm like, you know, maybe I should look at this. And then I started going down the rabbit hole. And what I discovered was this rabbit hole, not only does it go deep and no respect hit the bottom, but it expands as you go down. It's really incredible technology. And those that are wondering what's next, forget all the hype about Bitcoin. Blockchain is what this is about. It's what's next. If you're 1996, it's the next web. If you are 2007, it's the smartphone coming into existence. This is it. I'm confident. And that's why I'm all in with the show, teaching and learning and talking about blockchain.
0: And I think this is important because you found something that maybe a year ago, you didn't really know much about crypto, but within maybe the last six months or so, you've really honed into it. So you found something you're passionate about and that you can become an expert in just by putting in the time. It's not like you've been looking at crypto since 1995,
1: right? Mm -mm. Well, no, there wasn't really. I mean, you know, Bitcoin wasn't until 2008, 2009. For years, most people had no clue, and really, 2017 was the year that we started seeing mainstream awareness. A lot of people put money in, and some of them were sad that it fell earlier this year, like, oh, well, Bitcoin's over. No, 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 this thing is just getting started. Now, I don't speculate as to the prices of Bitcoin or any of the cryptocurrency, but I know that blockchain is in its infancy, and over the next 20 years, It's going to do for many industries what we've seen the web do for the way that we engage and interact and buy and sell and have community
0: one of the points I was trying to bring out is that no matter what age you are or what point in time that you can always evolve. Obviously, you've done that the most. It sounds like all my guests to do these different things and find something that you're passionate about. And then luckily, finding a wave that also you think is going to grow as well. I think it's important to find something that you do enjoy and that you're doing. And then like I was saying is that with the block space, that seems like a growth market as well. So that seems like you pick a good thing to try to educate yourself in and become an expert in.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I kind of feel like it picked me and I feel like it's always been that. I think that I usually don't go looking for the next big thing. I just have my eyes open and I follow my interests, my natural inclinations for what interests me. I don't go looking for the business opportunity. It's just because I'm curious and always talking to people and seeing what's up that these things have found me again and again.
0: I know you said you are not going to speculate on the price of Bitcoin, but can you maybe talk a little bit more about the future of blockchain and where you see it going? Again, I think you did the best job you could of trying to explain what it is, but just so we get an idea of maybe five or 10 years from now, how things are going to be different.
1: Well, you know, like right now we have decentralized banking system, but cryptocurrency is making it so we don't need banks. We become our own banks. We don't have to deal with their massive fees for wiring funds or having transactions or the requirements because we're able to do peer to peer transactions in new ways. It means that music artists that basically earn nothing for their streams on Spotify or Pandora are going to find ways to monetize so that when somebody wants to listen to their music, they get instantly paid without a huge commission going to a third-party site. It means if things go well, we'll be able to solve voter fraud by putting it on blockchain will know every vote counts and you won't be able to fraud it by having multiple votes from the same people because blockchain will be able to verify what's legit and what's not. It's going to affect how people transact their solar power. There's a company in Australia that if you're banking your solar energy and one of your neighbors needs it, they can buy it directly from you without going through a third-party intermediary. Extrapolate This type of thinking to just about any vertical and you're going to discover that blockchain is going to revolutionize. There's going to be a lot of companies that wake up to go, what just happened? The same way that Blockbuster got clobbered by Netflix and Nokia got clobbered by Apple and retail everywhere is getting clobbered by Amazon, they're going to wake up and go, wow, how did the world change? Where were we when this was happening? How were we not paying attention to it? And it could be your industry. Somebody's listening right now that the odds are that whatever industry you're in is going to be disrupted by blockchain. And the question is, are you going to be disrupted or are you going to be the one disrupting?
0: How would you see that? Because you gave a lot of great examples, I think, that maybe people could think of the blockchain. How about real estate? How would you see it in there?
1: Yeah, well, putting real estate on blockchain. Talk about being able to track contracts and who owns what. Real estate can be put on blockchain and there's no more disputes about prices and values and modifications to a home because it's all documented permanently on blockchain.
0: And where does all this data go? Because you say it's permanently
1: there. Yeah. It's decentralized. It's out there on the internet, on nodes, just like the internet is decentralized, right? And there's millions and millions of computers that all of this data floats from one node to another. This blockchain data is out there on the internet, but the blockchain itself, you can't go, okay, I'm going to take this blockchain and I'm going to hack it and make my own. You can't change what's on the blockchain because it's not in one central location because it's everywhere. When the blockchains that are all over these different nodes on the internet don't agree, then the one that doesn't agree is kicked out. It doesn't count. It doesn't survive. It's kind of like the mutant, right? It doesn't work. It won't take. And so this decentralized move, which is blockchain, actually gives us greater trust in the system.
0: Would you have a suggestion for anyone who wanted to learn more? I don't know if there's a particular episode for beginners or just someone who's starting off because maybe yeah, you know, a lot of us heard it and they want to just find out the beginnings to see if it makes more sense.
1: Start at the beginning because you go on this journey with us and the podcast, especially in the early parts, is very serialized. What is blockchain? What is Bitcoin? What is Ethereum? How does this work? And so we kind of go down that road and then jump in wherever you find it interesting Travis and I have an ability to make seemingly complex subject matter easy to understand, and it's fun. I think that's why it's resonated with so many people.
0: Well, how about looking back on your personal story? If there's one thing that you'd want the people who are listening to know, what would that be about?
1: Make sure you're having fun doing what you're doing, for real. There is somebody who once said, if you could tell the difference between your play and your work, you're doing one of them wrong. I'm not saying there's not a time for hard work, because there is. But if you're not really and truly engaged in what you're doing and you're just in it for the money, you might make money doing it. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. Just saying that ultimately you're not going to find your greatest fulfillment in that. Money truly does not buy happiness. It's great to be out of debt. It's nice to pay your mortgage and be able to have an abundance to do cool things with, but it also brings its share of problems and Life is short. You know, I've had some friends that have passed away way too young by my accounts, and you don't know when your time is. Carpe those DMs, my friends.
0: If there's a way that someone wanted to, like, personally thank you for doing the interview or to follow you, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you?
1: Joelcom.com. There's a contact form there, and everything comes directly to me. So I'd love to hear from people.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Joel, for joining us. My pleasure. you're looking for other tech-based interviews, then consider episode 60 with Cam Duty, episode 55 with Thorn Rodriguez, or episode 50 with Max and Pedro from Winding Tree. This awesome podcast is now approved by Spotify. So if you'd rather tune into our episodes via the Spotify app, then just go ahead and search for Millionaire Interviews.